0: Good morning brothers and sisters. Um, my name is Kyle DeVries. As most of you probably know already, um, I am, have been interning here this summer and that has been an absolute joy and blessing to not only me but my family. Um, thank you for that. Uh, my wife Hannah is joining me this morning and our son Kevin is already in the nursery because he's rambunctious. So. Uh, But we're also expecting a baby girl this November, um, so we're looking forward to that. But we are very delighted and honored to be with you this morning and able to worship our awesome God uh, with you. And in that, uh, I just want to say a quick prayer. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, we come before you now as needy children needy to hear your word, needy to have our hearts softened, and needy to love you and love each other. God, I pray now that you would give me the words to speak and all of us the ears to hear what you have for us this morning from the gospel as recorded by your servant Luke. Would we be nourished, convicted, and refreshed by your word this morning, Lord, we pray that in all these things you would be glorified, and we pray in all these things, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now turn together to the end of chapter 6 in the Gospel according to Luke, verses 46 through 49. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, so you'll find it located just after Matthew and Mark and right before John. Let me read this now for us. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of our Lord. Too often today, we hear about many Christians seemingly walking away from the faith, whether that is by deconstruction or just giving themselves over to the world. The question that can be asked with this is, why? Why is this the case? Why are so many Christians walking away from the faith? And I believe in this passage uh, we have just read holds a clue to the answer to this question. So this morning, as we are in the gospel according to Luke, we say that in this particular way, according to, rather than just the gospel of Luke, because it is not the gospel of or good news of Luke himself we seek to speak of. It is the good news of the Messiah, in which Luke wanted to make known, to the reader of his day, and wants to make known to us today. In the opening verses of this gospel story, Luke begins by stating that his desire is to give an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among the people of his time. His desire is that this orderly orderly account Of the good news, it would give the reader certainty of the things that they have been taught. Namely, the story of God's sovereign plan to save his people through the promised seed seen in Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the Old Testament. As Luke displays this very thoughtfully throughout the opening chapters of his gospel... The sovereign plan of God is to be accomplished through the long-awaited messianic king whom Luke declares to be a man named Jesus of Nazareth. That is where the story then goes. The story of the gospel and the rest, according to Luke and the rest of the entire Bible is the story of the long-awaited Messiah and what this Messiah has done And will accomplish. In our passage today, this Jesus is at the tail end of a grand sermon. One of the most beautiful, challenging, and comforting sermons in the entire Bible. Like the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew, Luke records a similar sermon that is said to be in the plains or on a level place, and this sermon includes various blessings woes, commands, and parables. We find ourselves in the concluding portion of this sermon with Jesus' final parable. This is fairly well-known parable, as we have already read. It is the, two, it is the parable of the two builders. From this, from this text, I hope you will see with me three elements from the sermon of Jesus' that I believe Jesus desires for us to learn and apply from uh, from his parable of these two builders. These three points are to live, build, and trust. Live, build, and trust. So let's start with the first point. Live. We are to live under the lordship of Christ. Jesus begins our text by asking a very simple question. Yet it's a shocking question. In verse 46, he asks why someone would call him Lord and not do what he commands. Jesus is not speaking here to those seen as his enemies. But Jesus is speaking to all of those following him. He's speaking directly to the great multitude of his disciples that have been listening to this entire sermon. Just like when we pray and say, Lord, these disciples would have called Jesus Lord. And Jesus asks them why. Jesus tells the 12 in John chapter 13 that they are right to call him Lord. So why would Jesus ask this multitude why? For us to understand this purpose of Jesus asking the question, we must realize what the word Lord means. Lord is an English translation of a, a Greek word, the Greek word kyrios. Not curious, but kyrios. This same word is used for the Hebrew Hebrew text for the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. When the New Testament was being written, they had this in mind. when they would refer to Jesus as Lord, they were not claiming something just normal, but they were claiming something staggering. It was to claim Jesus as God incarnate. While we must acknowledge that, the, that calling someone Lord was common to that day, and that's Lord with a lowercase l, it was often to a way of showing respect um, or, or just a way of acknowledging a superior. Uh, Even the Roman emperor received the title Lord often. Um, But when the New Testament writers declared Jesus as Lord, it was not mainly to show him respect. While that that is an aspect of it, it was to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as God. When the Twelve acknowledged Jesus as Lord in John chapter 13, as I said, they did so in understanding the deity of Jesus. That is in contrast with this passage here. Jesus knows that some of the multitude of his disciples call him Lord in an empty manner. He knew this because he knew what calling him Lord meant. It meant something different for one's lifestyle. Calling Jesus Lord is understanding his worth. It is to live a life of the Latin phrase corum Deo, or in the presence of God. As R.C. Sproul puts it, "To to live corum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. That's what living under the lordship of Christ meant. But what does that look like? We can comprehend this, and maybe even the person Jesus is questioning comprehended this statement. But how do we go from comprehension to application? What does living under the lordship of Christ look like? I think this passage gives the answer to that. The way we live under his lordship is to build. But we don't just build anywhere or build on anything. We must build upon the solidity of Jesus Christ. This is the second point, to build. Build upon the solidity of Christ our Lord. The first question I'd have if I was you is, what in the world is solidity? Or is that even a word? Um, The answer being yes, solidity is a word. And it means the quality or state of being firm or strong in structure. So we are to build on something or someone who is firm and solid in structure. And based on this passage, that someone is Jesus Christ. Just after Jesus, Jesus asks the question of why he immediately responds with the parable of the two people building two houses. One person in this example is an example of a true disciple of Jesus with an understanding of him as truly Lord over their life, while the other is a person who has decided to have someone or something else as Lord over their life. So let us start with the ladder builder, Jesus says in verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them, being Jesus' commands, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. This latter builder arrived at his work and had to make a decision. He made that decision in two possible ways. He either did not take into consideration what he was building on, or He knew that building a foundation would be better and still chose not to do it. Either way, the builder decided to build without a foundation, which ends up being a grave mistake. And in the end, he loses everything, everything he worked for. The first builder did something different. Jesus says in verse 48, he, a person who follows the commands of God, is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. This builder took his time. He dug deep. And he didn't stop digging just a few inches. He dug deeper and deeper and deeper until he hit the rock. And even when he hit the rock, he didn't say, you know what, I need to remove this rock and throw it away. But he built his foundation on that rock. One of these builders took shortcuts to build a house on the ground. No foundation at all. The other digs deep to build his foundation on the rock. But both men, in the end, have houses. But the reality is only one is able to stand the test of time. This isn't a call for us to go build houses with good foundations. That's not what Jesus is getting at. Well, that is an important thing, to have a house with a good foundation. Jesus is calling his disciples and us to something more than just a well-built house. He's calling us to build our lives upon him. And to Jesus, this building is not done by word only, but in actively following his commands. We build by keeping his commands. Many Christians today often assume that since I've said a prayer, I'm henceforth forever right with God, no matter what my lifestyle is, no matter how I live. But Jesus is challenging that statement. These people whom he is speaking to knew Jesus. They saw him face to face. They came to him and called him Lord a number of them may have even been miraculously healed by him yet jesus asks them the question of why they call him lord and not do what he commands jesus wanted to get to the root or in this case the foundation of the matter in order for our lives in order for our lives to truly be well built they must be built upon the Foundation of Christ, a beautiful house can come crumbling down if it 's not built upon Christ. This reminds me of a, uh, of a house that I saw one time it 's up in Virginia on a beautiful lake, and there was there was a house there that the land was probably worth a million dollars, and the house itself was probably another million or two million dollars um, and but after a year the house went vacant and the reason it went vacant was because one morning the owner of the house was walking to their beautiful view of the lake right where their dining table was and he noticed that the floor was cracking and that it was starting to slope and the reason that was the case was because it had a bad foundation and so you have this beautiful wonderful house that nobody can live in because it doesn't have a good foundation There will be a time, whether now or in the time to come, that those who call Jesus Lord and do not do as he commands will be found out. Jesus here is calling his disciples to build upon not just some random rock, but the same rock that the church is built upon, himself. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus states that the church will be built upon Peter's confession. That Jesus is the Christ. Jesus calls that confession the rock. This confession, this reality of the solidity of Christ is what we are to build our lives upon. But even more interestingly, the same rock we are to build our own lives upon, the church is to be built upon. It can then be inferred that this building is not solely an individual matter. But furthermore, it is a collective building. As we build our lives upon Christ, the church is simultaneously being built. As we seek to build the church, we seek that those within the church are being built upon the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself. But as, now as we live under the lordship of Christ and build upon him as our foundation, there's something else that needs to happen. We must then fully trust We must trust in the foundation of Christ. As Jesus shows in this passage, the most important part of a building is the foundation. And the building itself represents our lives. So what are our lives built upon? If we believe that Jesus is the Lord of our life, And we believe that we have built upon him as our foundation. When the earth quakes under our feet, what happens? When the storms batter against us, what happens? Brothers and sisters, the storms of this life are part of what reveals to us who our personal Lord is and what we have built our lives truly upon. And the question then remains... Do you trust in your foundation, whatever that foundation is? As we walk through the Christian life, the enemy seeks to kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour one of the enemy's foremost goals in attacking Christians is to cause us to doubt. To doubt in God, to doubt in Christ's redemptive work on the cross, to doubt in our firm foundation. We can see this story play out time and time again in scriptures. When the serpent tempts Eve by creating doubt about what God really said, when Israel doubts that the God who brought them out of Egypt, Egypt, will have a plan to bring them to the promised land, and even when they, they even doubted God when they got to the promised land, when Thomas doubts that Jesus was truly risen from the grave, all people have doubt. It's a part of our fallen world. We often doubt in good things. Like, have I spent enough time in the word? Or did I communicate that hard statement well? Doubt is everywhere. The issue is not doubt itself. But it is what we do with the doubt. One builder doubted the foundation and built on something else. One builder probably had doubts, but trusted that the foundation was good. Christ, in this passage, is not just calling you to build your lives upon him mindlessly, or just build bigger houses. It's not his goal. He calls us to build our lives upon him through trust and belief in in him as our foundation. You see, trust and belief are tied together. You cannot believe in something without trusting it. And you cannot trust in something without believing it. There is not a story about building, this is not a story about building more or just following Jesus better, per se. While following his commands is part of it, and Jesus says that is a story about trusting in our assurance of salvation, knowing that our houses are built upon the rock of Christ. These two lives that we see lead to radically different endings. One leads to destruction, eternal destruction, and the other leads to everlasting life. But God's sovereign plan isn't solely to save each individual builder, Or to just have one builder to build upon Christ. But God's sovereign plan is to save his collective people. As has already been pointed out, Jesus here is speaking to the congregation. He knows that some of them were building upon other things. But his goal remained the same to point them to himself. Jesus knew we cannot build alone and that is part of why we gather today. We gather to collectively build and trust in Christ. To end this morning's sermon, I want to tell you a story of a man named Polycarp. His story takes place around 160 AD when the church was under persecution from the Roman empire. They were under persecution for not worshiping the Roman gods. Um, Polycarp was the bishop at that time. They had bishops in the church and, um, from the church in Smyrna, Smyrna, um, which is a city in Asia Minor, so it's to the east of where Rome is. At this point, he was an old man, and many believe he was the last person to have known an apostle, having probably been the disciple of the Apostle John. Polycarp was taken to be executed for not denying Jesus as the Christ. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, the pro-council asked him whether he was Polycarp. So obviously he was, so there's that answer. Um, so the pro continued to try to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar... Repent and say, down with the atheists. Christians of that day were often called atheists because they believed in one God rather than many gods like the Romans. So it's not the same word that we know today. The proconsul continued, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And then Polycarp said in his response, 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They then bound him and he looked up to heaven and prayed. "O Lord God almighty. The father of your beloved and blessed son Jesus Christ. By whom we have received the knowledge of you. The God of angels, powers and every creature and of all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks to count me worthy to be numbered among the martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all the things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your son. To you, with him, through the Holy Spirit, be both glory now and forever. Amen. Polycarp was then burnt at the stake. The story of Polycarp is a story of a man who knew his foundation. Many, if not all of us, will never have to face what the reality that Polycarp faced at the end of his life. But the meaning is still true at the end of our lives. What is our foundation built upon? But the prayer for us, after leaving from here this morning that we would live under the lordship of Christ build upon him as our foundation and trust that he truly is our firm foundation and the firm foundation this way of living I think is the answer to the first question I proposed this morning too often we hear of many Christians seemingly walking away from the faith the answer of why or the question of why is answered in the where. Where is there in your foundation? I pray that we all would be able to say similar words as Polycarp did at the closing of our lives. 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Let us pray. Most holy God, we praise you for your word. We pray that as we leave here this morning we would live under Christ's lordship build upon him as our foundation and that we would trust in him as the true foundation. We thank you for challenging aspects of your word. Lord we also thank you for the assurance your word brings to our hearts. Would your word Rest upon our hearts this week, O Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.